the Sata Sambo Janga, Sata Seven. And the Bojanga comes from Bodhi, awake, Janga from the word Anga, uh, meaning limb, the limbs of awakening, the seven limbs of awakening, energetic ones and calming ones. It was so of such great value that it's even used as a protection and as a, uh, a means of restoring health to the ill and as a, a direct path to self-realization. As long as um, I've been going to Burma, which is since the mid-70s when one could only stay a week at a time. It's been um, ruled by dictatorship, individual and, um, and military dictatorship. And the, the, the nature, the mental nature of that dictatorship is really quite sick, as in pathological, like weird beliefs and superstitions uh, of every nature. It, it, it included, with an earlier dictator who's now dead, fear that, any, that every foreigner in there was either CIA or KGB. And so every one of us would have to leave for periods of time, even when we were in robes. And then, so those of us who were living there would go to Thailand for however long it took to get a new visa and go back. Just the way it is. The silver lining of a country like that is that it's preserved probably the greatest collection of pure Dhamma transmitters of anywhere I know in the world. Just because it's been closed to the outside world and globalization and all the, uh, the ills that come with that. Uh, so, it was a really lucky period of time in, in, those, in those decades to, to meet a lot of these really great and nuns and monks. And it was even even so when we'd have to go to Thailand. Because it wasn't so long after the Vietnam War era and there was still an innocence largely in the Thai tradition, the forest monk tradition there that's now uh, nearly collapsed. Um, and one of the places, one of the three or four places I, I went to was right in Bangkok, um, next to the Wat Bavorn, where the king and queen would go uh, to give their um, merit and dana and support the Sangha, the nuns and monks, um, and, and do their practice. And there was often a, a distinguished, there was always some distinguished abbot or guest there. And, and in those early years, 81, 82, 83, one of these distinguished uh, guests was uh, from, the, from the south. But his name was, was uh, Pra. Pra is a word for like monk or a respectful high term for the Buddha as well, Pra-ajan Dun Atulo. So people simply called him Luang Pu, which is a respectful term for a grandfather. He, he, was, he was there a lot. Uh, the, the king really loved him and was often invited for, for ceremonies and, and regarded like many of the the great 
Sangha of the North, of the Northeast, and in in Burma, to be a noble one, an Arya, one with no more uh, disturbance in the mind, no more greed, hatred, and delusion. There's really no mark of enlightenment, you know. There, there's no characteristic, particularly like like the, the teachers who give remarkable talks and repeat suttas and attract large followings. That does not at all necessarily uh, mean they're they're deeply accomplished. The ones I felt fortunate to meet were. I learned to have a, a, a hint of their quality of heart by their humility, by their near invisibility in some ways. And, and this monk, Ajahn Dun Atulo, or Luang Pu, as I'll call him, he, he was one of those. And w- one evening in, uh, in April 1981, he came from the palace uh, after performing a ceremony and he was resting and a quite high-ranking popular monk came in also known to be a meditator and meditation master and he he said to uh, Wang Pu he said um, they say that um, they say a person who was a, a yaka in a former life, a, a yaka is like a benevolent spirit, referred to him uh, last night, I, I believe, Michelle did, or yesterday, uh, like Upandita, when he was visiting the Big Island, when it exploded volcanically, he considered Peli a kind of half and half, the sometimes yaka, which is a mostly benevolent spirit, but also has a little mischievous nature to her, you know, and that was her fire and her fight and so forth. Uh, and sometimes deva. And, and deva, m- more the expression of, of that purity and nobility. So anyway, this monk is saying, I've heard that someone who's a, a yaka in their past life, if when they're reborn in, in the present life as a as a human again have these magical powers and and know how to apply them almost in any way they want and uh, Wang Pu who had been lying down he immediately sat up and and said he said this I've never been interested in that sort of thing at all but have you ever meditated to this point uh, and he mentions this Pali word, Hasitupapada, which means um, the moment of the mind when it smiles of its own nature without any intention to smile. Uh, it happens, he said, Luang Pu said, it happens uh, only in a noble one's mind, heart. It doesn't happen in ordinary people uh, because it lies beyond the conditions of fabrication, free in and of itself. This, the Sata Bojanga, the seven limbs of awakening, take us beyond fabrication. And fabrication, which I'll try to weave in a little bit in the remaining factors I'm going to talk about tonight, uh, calm, concentration, equanimity. There's a really good word, Pali word for fabrication, and that word is papancha. It, 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 in the sound and the feel of the word implies the nature of fabrication, which is a very sticky mind, which is always proliferating and, and um, embellishing, fabricating, Experience, like almost the moment that we have experience, a thought, a sensation, a sight, a sound, already 
the mind is off. You know, we've just sort of been generalizing. We start associating or thinking or comparing uh, and so forth. But what really happens is this uh, habitual, deep psychological process rooted in, in delusion of, of mental fabrication, mental proliferation called papancha. It immediately creates a story. And it's conceptual uh, and it's deep and we tend to identify and believe it. We take it to be true. Uh, and it's really responsible for, for the, the block of this stream of Sambhojanga, the, the blockage of these limbs of awakening from happening. They, they, they create the restlessness and anxiety uh, that keep the mind disturbed and distracted. Uh, so, it's helpful to understand because again and again, that's what we come up against. Every time we feel somehow stuck or blocked or unable to navigate a particular um, turbulent system, w what we want to first look for is any sense or any felt sense of mental proliferation. Now, am I making a story of this? Am I lost in some story? Am I caught somewhere? Or can the mind again just come back and rest in things as they are? Uh, which is often why body is the first domain, the first pasture of our exploration, because it's always here, it's always available, the body doesn't lie. It shows us nature, both in its... Uh, and it's a, a gritty and visceral textures and temperatures, as well as in its streaming nature of change. So it's, all, it's often the first place that we can recognize papancha happening, mental proliferation, little ones and large ones. Um, and, and in a way, Luang Pu was sort of bursting the bubble of this probably pompous you know, high-ranking meditation uh, monk who wanted to talk about magical things and power and whatnot. <laughs> Luang Pu says, you know, I'm not, I'm just not interested in that, never have been, doesn't mean anything to me. Have you ever heard of, of the heart that just smiles without any intention at all by its own nature because of the very purity of heart? The heart has no papancha in it. It only happens to the noble ones. <laughs> but he'd say it kindly, you know, and with a heart of, 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 of metta, you know, not really with any way intending to put the person down. This is nature. So I think, uh, I think we left off the other evening with, with piti and it started with um, mindfulness itself and then Mindfulness as it draws in Dhamma Vichaya, uh, like wisdom in action, the non-conceptual investigation that notices, in essence, the two streams of reality, phys physical, physicality stream, and mentality stream. They're intertwined and inseparable, uh, but they're, they're noticed in every moment of awareness. Sometimes the discerning mind feels more the, the physicality, the, the textures of, of the body, uh, or, or in visual experience, both the eye and, and, and light particles are also physical phenomena, they're called rupa. And then in that contact moment, the, the scene is a mental, it's, it's a nama, it's a mental experience, seeing consciousness. And likewise, sound is rupa, it's, uh, it's textures. It's like the body, the material, the universe, and the contact uh, with the inner sensitivity of the ear, also a physical phenomena, rupa, is the, is the cause for hearing consciousness to arise. If there's not clear comprehension of that, and clear comprehension, remember, is part of sati, sati sampajanya, mindfulness, and clearly, compre and clear comprehension of purpose and 
suitability in the nature of phenomena. Or another word I use for that is just simply self-awareness in all that we do. If there isn't clear comprehension on how our experience is appearing moment to moment at the sense doors, then there's going to be papancha. Then we weave a story. You know, my eye and that object. It is, and there isn't a clue about the amazing nature of, of seeing and seeing consciousness and what seeing actually is. You know, it's not theory. It's it's not broken up into um, some idea that that reality might be this way. It it really is this way. Light hits the sensitivity of the eye and sound, the sensitivity of the ear, and flavor and taste, nose and tongue, and so forth. And then the receptor of of the body that receives these phenomena in that contact, experience happens. It's real, it's true, it's felt, it can be known, not imagined, it's not conceptual. The proliferation is then conceptual. So the investigation is discerning that. It's kind of slowly breaking up the habit of papancha. Every time we come back and just know not my shoulder is painful, but we know heat and pressure somewhere in space because often the idea of the body or parts of the body fall away and it's just sensations somewhere in space. You know, the way a navigator, wayfinder, would have to sense through sound and scent and taste when, when the eye wasn't available at night would have to sense the behavioral nature, lawful nature, to know where where they were, and in, in in this you know 25 million kilometer wilderness. So in the same way, we we start to get to know things free of the papancha mind, uh, and and the 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 movement of that creates this. Virya, this profound Dhamma energy, the strength and courage of heart that really then takes the task, I want to know what this is about. I want to know what this is that I call the body that gives me so much pleasure and gives me so much pain and I have no control either either one of them when they happen. And, and it, you know, if I'm sick, I, I, if I want to be healthy, it doesn't happen. And so on and so forth. So what's really going on so that I can understand without the stories, without the identification. So that so brings, brings forth this unique and balanced effort that knows how to bring up skillful states that haven't arisen and, and, uh, and sustain them and knows how to reduce unskillful states that have arisen and and keep the ones that haven't arisen from arising, those four qualities, are clear definitions of, of dhamma, energy, you know, as, as well as uh, the energy of a heroine, our hero, that, that just keeps going. And that leading to piti, which is what I ended with last night, the other night, the, when, when genuine, non-sensual joy arises from within the body and mind, doesn't depend on what's happening in the sense fields. It doesn't depend on what we see and hear, smell, taste, touch, or think. It's generated by itself. In, in this same way, this you know, Pali word, situ papatada, within itself, dhamma within itself, the mind heart that smiles, not through any intention or external force. So, piti is, is a dhamma. It's, it's a skillful dhamma, very skillful dhamma. It's, a, it's known as a beautiful state. The dhamma bhavana, bhavana is the word for meditation, draws out these beautiful states. And, and piti is like the joy that feeds us 
uh, from the marrow, from within, outwardly, rather than trying to take outward in, the way we do with pleasure. The difference between pleasure, attachment, and pleasure, and and spiritual happiness, you know, dhamma pleasure. So that that arises, and it it's felt on such a molecular level. So it changes, it begins to change everything. You know, and at first one can be intoxicated by it. Of course, an attachment can can form around it in the right set and setting and you're protected and you have really skillful guides and you understand well this is piti it's an awakening factor it's bojanga piti bojanga it 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 has a nature to lift the mind you know at first it's just a little thrilling it's uh, called uh, i think pilio um, uh, a pilio erection it means your hair stands up in the back of your head <laughs> and and then uh, if it moves along, it, you, you feel like you get hit with lightning. You get a jolt sometimes. I've seen you all go through that uh, when I'm sneaking looks. Or if you're looking at me, sometimes you see a jerk, you know? That's, a, that's, that's the, um, it's like hit with lightning. It's just a, a sudden rush. And then it gets smoother and sweeter. Then it starts feeling like a, a, a sh- you're sh- showering at a warm Japanese bath. It has those waterfalls, and you're just bathing in it. We used to have long stops in Japan on our way to Burma, and and use that six hours to take a train into Narita, and they have a, a men's and women's section in the bathhouse, and with all these, you know, water with with tea, <laughs> and water that's really hot and water that's really cold and you'd roll in salt and then walk through this thing and get showers and you'd go outside to this bamboo grove and stand under this warm waterfall. And then a, a, a fourth kind of PT is uplifting. And sometimes that's when we're sitting or standing. You know, we're in our mindful posture and we're, we know the posture that we're in. And, and it's the feeling that the, the whole body is being lifted up. It either, either begins to feel very light or there's really this sensation that it's being elevated. You feel like you're being, being beamed up by Scotty, you know, or somebody up there. Uh, and that's, that's uplifting joy. And then the most mature and the most necessary, most useful um, in, in terms of a limb of awakening, of, of the piti gojanga, is uh, what's called all suffusing or surging. It's like maybe you're lying on the beach in warm sun and warm sand. Your body becomes the sand. Warm waves come and just you know wash over you, and just feel filled, completely filled with this warm bath of of uh, embracing joy. You know, that's what it is, suffusing, all suffusing, or surging joy. And it starts to level off. It's no longer the thrill of the previous, you know, more tender, younger kinds of joy. It starts to level off because it becomes the proximate cause for a deeper kind of spiritual happiness, an ease and well-being. powerful body-mind comfort. E- even if there's still physical, mental disturbances, they're contained. So it's like y- your, your sense of being feels like a huge body of water, and this, 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 the disturbances that come are just a few pebbles that are thrown in, immediately absorbed by it. Sukha, this, this deep ease. And that's and that's the immediate cause for the bojanga of pasiri, calm. You know, it, in terms of the enlightenment factors, sukha is there. It's not named. It's just part. It's packed in there between the piti and the pasiri, uh, and and it's the immediate cause for for calm to come. This the uh, the fifth of the Bojangas. Calm 
is also felt physically and emotionally, mentally and bodily, a calm, a peace. It's a kind of peace that the the PT doesn't go away, it just recedes, uh, and it becomes like, you know, coordinated with with the already developed um, previous Bojangas, energy, investigation, you know, they're sort of set in motion now. And, and this process starts happening rather quickly and in cycles, as I mentioned, or as a chord, you know, a chord of movement of, of this of these awakening factors. So pusity is what happens when the mind feels secluded and seclusion is usually from the hindrances, the, the hindrances of wanting and a dissatisfaction, uh, sloth and lethargy, restlessness and anxiety, doubt. The, those are abated by the power of pusity. You know, so at peace and so at ease feels the body. We feel like we can hold anything. Not afraid of anything. It's like a fearless uh, calm in this pusity, this ease. And you know, that, that would be the thing I'd always notice about these monks. So th- this monk I was talking about, Luang Pu, was 95 when I met him. Another one I had met in Burma uh, 10 years later, or maybe 20 years later, actually. Uh, it's 103. And I met him a year before he died. And as soon as we, we entered the grounds of his monastery, I felt, the, I felt the peace. Just the way things grew there, including the buildings, that everything... The, the car seemed to turn off by itself, and everything was silent. And I went with Saira Ulakana, you know, who we teach with there, in his monastery, 15, 15 kilometers south on the river. You know. So we went north and then inward into Sagain Hills to find this person that I'm pretty sure wouldn't be around much longer, which was true. And we w- walked into his cottage was almost this size and I was probably in there 15 minutes or more before I even knew that he was completely blind and nearly deaf and I only knew that because his attendant when he when he asked the attendant to introduce each of us who was there I realized we first of all couldn't see us and then because the attendant needed a megaphone, basically, to yell into his year, ear to say, you know, five times, Stephen Smith from Hawaii. So loud that, you know, it was kind of a little disturbing almost. But he wanted to know. He wanted to know the name. And he wanted to touch the person he was introduced to. So go up and the respectful bow to the robes, Uda, Dhamma, Sangha. And then he wanted to feel the hands. And these were the first time I was ever aware of touching hands of peace. And I I could probably only describe them uh, this way. In temperature, they were a cool warmth. In texture, they were as, as smooth as silk and at the same time firmly held my ha- one hand with his two. And then I put my second hand there. It just seemed appropriate. And um, and what transpired, I, ha- I can't say even how long that was so. Uh, and after there was an introduction to my friends and I, I mean, we sat there for some timeless um, hours. When we were about to leave, he called each one of us by memory. Uh, 
and to greet us and, and, and bless and give us a blessing. And his, his blessing was simple and a powerful teaching, transmission. He, he said to, he would take, take the hands again, those hands of peace, and he'd say, um, may you be happy, may you be peaceful, may you be free of even a single unskillful mind moment. You know, exactly what Luang Pu is talking about, the heart that smiles of its own accord, of its own nature, unprompted, with no intention. It's that purity, that wish that, that these limbs of awakening take us beyond this, this fabrication, proliferation called papancha, to that place where we are genuinely free, happy and peaceful and free of even one unskillful mind moment. You know, it wasn't anything other than a pure blessing and teaching. It wasn't like a, a lecture and it wasn't a social nicety. It's like I was hit with the light of that. It filled my heart. And now that would have been... Uh, Before, the, the first time I was banned, because when I came back to Burma and was again blacklisted, he was already passed away. So, you know, it was maybe in 97 or 98, but I remember it like it was a moment ago. I remember the feeling of those hands and the, and the peace from them. That's how I could, re I could relate pustity to someone who embodied it who had it as a perfection. So that, that part of our limb of awakening is what continues to keep the mind in seclusion from disturbances, from, you know, like the bamboo mind I talk about. Uh, if our minds were too rigid about things, it, it becomes brittle, you know, and brittle breaks. But bamboo just bends. Its strength is, is in its vulnerability, its hollowness. So, yeah, in the world, when we go back out, we'll be tempted and we'll be intimidated every day in little ways. Uh, but this pusity that we've been receiving as a transmission here, because uh, they all, they're all inside of us. It's not something we're getting outside of ourselves. They all have this the same quality of C2... Uh, uh, which means they, are, they live inherently within, um, we can still call them up in daily life. Here they become naturally charged. You don't have to do anything. Uh, and hearing about them, of course, can help when we're in deep meditation like this. But they're doing their... The, the intelli Dhamma intelligence knows how to develop itself. The intelligence of the heart is already doing that. But it doesn't hurt now to have some understanding of them and realize that in daily life, peace is really important. In whatever ways we can create seclusion in our lives, a walk, a solitary walk, a, a meal in mindfulness, quiet time with a friend, some study, some writing and contemplation, but with the idea not of escape and, and, and not of the habit of going off into a papancha state, fabrication, embellishment, where we lose the plot, but of genuine seclusion, like Luan Po, where his rest was profound and awake at the same time, clear, and feel that the mind, heart, and body are just protected from these distractions of the mind wanting more. You know, and of buying into our ill will about things, a critical mind to ourself, to the world. We're on guard at that. We can call in this power of peace that, we're, that we have within us and that we're developing here, the gift of Dhamma that we're receiving from our practice and overcoming the, the kind of lethargy, not you know being genuinely tired, but when we use lethargy and 
sought as a defense against feeling feelings. And particularly peace is quite the opposite, isn't it? Of restlessness and anxiety. It is the direct remedy when the body-mind feel that frenetic dis-ease, anxiousness. Peace just chills it out. Peace is a cool mind. Quite the opposite of disturbance. Because of this capacity of body, mind, peacefulness, and seclusion, the the samadhi can come in. Samadhi means unification of mind or collectedness of mind, one-pointedness of heart, meaning it's not fragmented, it's not fractured, it's not scattered. It's gathered together like many streams in the back of a valley with the thick raindrops that fill up and slowly collect in one large pond. That large pond, stilled by the pusity, now becomes firm in its collectedness. So sometimes people report feeling they're sitting there and they feel the, the whole mind and body feel somehow as solid as a rock and yet yielding. doesn't feel hard. just feels solid. It feels compact. That's a, a very strong, you know, visceral experience of samadhi. There's nothing that's, uh, you know, tearing off into one fabrication or another. Unification is intact. And whether we apply it to the heart of uh, immeasurable love to ourselves or all beings, which is one direction we can take it, or whether we're using it in the in this uh, thread or cord of um, uh, the limbs of awakening, you know, that would be our wise reflection, our choice at the time. Because uh, each of these limbs have their own nature. They can work in and of themselves or, as the Buddha discovered, they work together as the way to self-realization. So we want to respect all those ways. Each individual quality is a powerful um, uh, anchor and source of the heart. And then, and then have, and the way they work together, each one being the, the proximate cause of the nicks in succession, uh, where the last one, again, like equanimity, is the cause for the most pure mindfulness, the most pure sati. Uh, and then how they work like, like seven strings of an of a instrument, a lute, that when they're in tune, you play the chord, and, and those are insights or awakening moments. It's how strong it is. So, so samadhi, samadhi, you know, we've had a, quite a bit of experience with just by nature and we can feel physical sensations of it we can see how that collected nature uh, occurs mentally and emotionally when 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 thoughts seem to work together seem to gather together as a powerful mental as mental formations think of a turbulent system with you know a wild storm like this and we look out at the sea and there's just dozens and dozens and hundreds of waves, separate waves. And then think of a sea in, in deep ocean navigation with, with just ground swells. It's big, powerful, unified movements of water that aren't like myriad little separate disturbing waves. It's just the, the, sea, the sea is still, you know, with that pussy-like stillness. And and the whole ocean has this um, collectedness of samadhi. And it's not without movement, but the movement aren't all these fractured little wave components. It's just just massive movement of a groundswell that will come and go, lift the boat up and set the boat down. And the water's still really clear. You can look in the water and, and, and see down as much as 30 
or more meters, uh, and often it reflects the sky quite perfectly and clearly. So we're beginning to have, I think, a felt sense of, of this samadhi and its basis, its foundation for, for wisdom and equanimity. Without it, it's impossible. It's the proximate cause for wisdom and equanimity. This, this uh, samadhi, bojanga, the, the sixth of the seven factors of limbs of awakening. I'm going to get through this tonight. Right. A couple of the text images for somebody, like, um, and if, if you've ever been, a, num- a number of you I know, you know, are, are nature beings and have even been hiking in places like uh, in the southwest where it's hot and dry. Uh, so one image uh, used for samadhi is like you're walking in, in a hot, dry desert and suddenly you come under the shade of a cool tree and there's a big jar of pure drinking water. <laughs> the feeling of that, the body, mind, emotion feeling of that. <laughs> uh, and, and it's everything we want. We're in that shade, we drink that water, and, and we want nothing else. You know, so if, if we were going to say exactly which limb of awakening uh, uh, repels desire, well, this is it. The samadhi, the mind that's so collected and content upon itself, it needs nothing more. It's lacking for nothing. It feels no poverty. That shade, that water. Uh, and it's also what is the force behind the most powerful metta we generate for ourselves, that we reside in the samadhi, uh, metta, chitta, the concentrated heart of metta. We can do anything we want with it. We can fill every molecule of our body. We can fill the space around us. And, you know, every person, any sense of difference, our history, any papancha around anyone just isn't there. And that's the very mature kind of metta, what we were teaching in the last retreat, the first retreat. This is the Brahma-vihara metta. So, upeka. Now we have our foundation, you know, if we look at it, in terms of each one being the proximate cause, uh, and each one, in a way, also maturing in the other one, like uh, investigation becoming virya in the way that virya is the energetic presence of the mind of inquiry, awareness of inquiry, and that becoming the interest uh, that grows into a, a, a rapturous, you know, awe, in this phenomena we call body-mind, nama-rupa. That each one is grown into the next. So that it's still all there. And then sort of rolls into the, the stillness. And ease of the pusity the peacefulness and the collectedness of the samadhi. Each one a little bit different. And here, just use a little bit of wise reflection. See if you can just even feel it now in the body, and feel it in the mind. All of them, all these six, are, are now the, the, the foundation for this, uh, this upeka that has... It grows out of the deepest part of our wisdom, the the most innate panya or vipassana. It's the most subtle of them all, 
and it's because of the upeka that the other ones get stronger. And, and this upeka, uh, as we know, has a, a similar use in the Brahma Vihara, in the practices with metta, compassion, uh, empathetic joy. And it also has its use in the paramis. And you just will see it everywhere. Uh, and it, it's, it can be considered, in this case, the same as, as the eye of wisdom. Because it is seen so through fabrication. It is seen right through that papancha that what allures the mind or impedes the mind or intimidates the mind just has no effect. There's just this incredible sense of being in the midst of things as they are. It's, it's, it's called the, the vicissitudes, facing the sankharas, all formations, all mental and physical formations are, do not disturb the upeka heart, the heart of upeka. Uh, it's also unbothered in our daily life, and this is a more practical application and understanding by what we face every day, pleasure and pain, praise and blame, uh, uh, good repute, good reputation, ill repute, and gain and loss. In so many ways, in our work, in our art, in our relations, in our regards to ourselves, in our, um, our, you know, our projects planned for that day, all of these things apply every single day. And they have nothing to do with wh whether we're doing something right or wrong. Th these eight worldly conditions, loka dhamma, dhamma here means, it's the small d, Cynthia, just means phenomena, nature, and loka, world, worldly nature, way of the world. It's just, we're presented all the time. It's just karmic results from our, you could say, genetic, you know, results from things in the past. We're always going to meet uh, uh, pleasure, praise, and a good reputation, and, and gain, whether we deserve it or not. Whether we deserve it or not, you know, people win the lottery or, you know, really uh, have a very happy experience at the result of someone else having an unhappy experience. And, and, and really noble people, including the Buddha and Luang Pu, and, you know, have days where they're blamed, you know, are assaulted by jealous um, um, monks or bodily pain about something, whether we deserve it or not, it's just the way of the world. And, and I find it kind of a handy mantra at times. Whatever I'm facing, just, I just say, way of the world. Or I say, lokadama. So I don't get attached to the gain and the praise and the pleasure and so forth. And I don't drop into despair. You know, where I can pull myself out of despair when I just lokadama at blame and pain and loss. So equanimity is that is the centerboard or the navigation rudder in our travels through turbulent systems and, and moving through turbulent systems, learning how to go, which way to go, understanding that worldly conditions happen as, as natural phenomena. Uh, and there's no control of it. It happens whether we want it to or don't want it to. The only thing we can do is deepen our understanding. Phenomena presents itself to us every moment through all the sense doors. So the eight worldly conditions work in, in every sense field. You know, sights and sounds and senses and sensations and mental phenomena, emotive formations, all carry that same weightiness. They arrive at our door uh, uninvited, as, as well as, you know, uh, 
the guy, what's his name? You know, Bill McMahon was the million dollar lottery check or something. Here, you won today, you know. All, all these things happen, pleasant and unpleasant, uninvited. Uh, and our, our wisdom is in understanding that, is, is the wide and serene mind of acceptance. That's upeka. Uh, that's being in the midst of things as they are. So, I'll close with a, an example uh, of a, a mentor embodying the, these qualities, especially the upeka. In the, in the mid-70s, I, I was sitting in a Japanese temple in India during the hot season by invitation. It was the only cool place to sit because you could go down underneath the temple, open up this old wooden medieval-looking dungeon-like trap door and go down underneath into the, into the dungeon, which has always stayed this, maintained this very cool temperature. A, a lot of the, he had a lot of the Buddhist texts there. He was a Japanese Zen master, so rolled up were a lot of teachings, and they were protected there from too much weather change. And his name was Shibuya-san. His first and foremost love was Dhamma and uh, sharing Dhamma. But he was also responsible for this, uh, this complex as a pilgrimage, particularly for Japanese tourists. Uh, he, he didn't like that part, but he had to do it. And he was always engaged in dispute with the authorities in Tokyo. Uh, so what he would do is, is oversee things during the day. There was a school, the pilgrimage house, a beautiful Zen garden, and, and people operating everything, teaching, you know, raking the sands and cutting the reeds and cleaning the pools in the garden, doing administrative things. And, and the few people who were allowed to stay there and practice, we, we had our jobs. Um, and then he'd finish at 10 o'clock at night. He'd sleep for, for four hours. And because of his deep love of Dhamma and, and, and wanting to put the papancha behind him, we'd meet at the trap door at 2, 2 a.m. and go down under the dungeon. And, and, and we'd practice together. Shibuya-san and, and this young, you know, uh, wide-eyed student, myself, one sitting, four hours, uh, and at six o'clock, he'd ring a little bell, and we'd go up, uh, and the visit visitors, you know, Western spiritual seekers from Europe and America and Australia, whatever, they'd have arrived from from Bodhgaya, guest houses and and other and other residences, and uh, we'd have a sitting and a walking and a reading for an hour and a half, and then go to the corner and bow to the Bodhi tree, the corner of the Japanese temple, one corner. So this went on for three months. Uh, I could always tell when he had a bad day with Tokyo. Uh, and uh, so the, the, the story ends now on one of his particularly worst day. And he actually had come back from Patna a long trip away and had to meet with officials who were scolding him for not taking good enough care of the pilgrims who, who were really only interested in partying. When the pilgrims were there, the place was smoke-filled and, and, you know, just parties and f- photographing spiritual phenomena, <laughs> however, whatever that is, you know. So he was really tired this night, but he was still there at 2 a.m. We went down and, and we sat together, and I could, I could feel, I could feel the energy in him. Didn't understand, but just I could feel something was different. 
Uh, and what, what I always noticed about him, because I, I cheated a lot, you know, I opened my eyes and would watch him because he'd sit like, he'd sit like the Buddha, and it just without moving. And I'd, sometimes I couldn't even tell if he was breathing. We just had a little candlelight. I never saw him look at the clock. Just when it was right six o'clock, he he'd ring the bell. I don't know how he knew it was six o'clock. So this night I'm peeking, and every few minutes. His body's moving like the hour hand of a clock. He's bending over out of weariness, like we feel like doing or actually do sometimes when there's no teacher here, you know, that, that our bodies lie down. And so he was going over for four hours. And, uh, and just before six, I heard his first sounds. He made a couple of snores, you know, like... And that woke him up. He rang the bell. It was six. We went up. There were 15, 12 or 15, you know, um, meditators, Western meditators. We did our chanting and our sitting and a little, short little mindful circle walk and then went to the corner uh, facing the Bodhi tree of the temple, the Japanese temple. Um, and I'm... Up to this point, I'm pretty okay with things. It's always a nice, refreshing hit to come out of that dungeon. And this morning, particularly because the sun was just, as the sun was just starting to rise, the full moon was setting. And it was still pretty dark out in the Japanese garden. And I couldn't see. I was right behind Shibuya-san. And he bowed, and so... The rest of us bowing to the Bodhi tree, and then halfway through the bow, this thunderous, ferocious roar. It shook everything. It shook the building. It shook the heavens. It shook the Bodhi tree. It shook every molecule in my body. It took me a, a, a good few seconds to realize it was Shibuya-san himself roaring, and then seeing these cameras flying all over the place, you know, and flash bulbs breaking on rocks and people falling into the ponds. And, and in, in seconds, there's about a half dozen pilgrims who were ready to capture this spiritual event. They were gone. They were absolutely gone. But I was just, I was contracted and congealed in total terror. And the usual ritual after bowing is he'd turn and bow to each of us, Ohio Gazimus, Ohio Gazimus, Japanese for good morning, Ohio Gazimus. And so he, he turned that day, that's right, there was a visiting Japanese monk in front of me. He, he bowed first to the Japanese monk. And then he came and bowed to me. And the, and the ritual was we'd make eye contact halfway through as we were finishing the bow, coming back up, and I couldn't make it. I was too, I was too terrified. <laughs> I, I was just frozen, and so. But he wouldn't move, and, and until I looked, he wouldn't move. So I looked, and what I saw was just these smiling eyes, and, and this light coming in. One eye from the rising sun and this, and this silvery other light in the other eye from the setting moon. And just this gorgeous, exquisite peace of equanimity, you know, following the fierce and thunderous, compassionate roar. This exquisite peace and all the way down, oh, Ohio Gazimus, Ohio Gazimus. Really cool, chilled out being with <laughs> beyond fabrication. It was a smile from within that didn't need any external phenomena. Let's sit with that for a moment. Papada, sit to papada. 
movement of the mind that smiles within, unprompted, arising out of purity, a moment of purity, understanding, equanimity. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.